So as you're uh, passing those offering baskets, the ushers can collect those on the side aisles there. Uh, before I speak this morning, I'm going to ask if uh, Carla Lowe would come join me, as, as well as Daryl and then Caitlin as well. They're going to come and, and join us here. So many of you know uh, Carla because of her role and influence with our children for over the last almost 15 years. She's been uh, either in support or leading our children's ministry and done an amazing job. Um, in a moment, we're going to get a chance to, to say thank you to her. And, and the reason we're going to say thank you to her is because she's in, in the transition right now. As Carla and I were been talking really months uh, just about um, her faithfulness in serving here. And there had been a few windows of opportunity for her to, to, to transition. And she was faithful and stayed here. And so through our dialogue over the last number of months, we realized this was another window that God was bringing for a transition for her that includes our children's ministry and also for her personally and what the, the door that God may be opening in the next season of life for her. And so, so this is actually her last Sunday. That's sad, but the good part is is that we're not sending them to the other side of the world, okay? They're staying here, at least as far as we know at this point. But I wanted to have Carla come up, and, and I'm going to give her a chance to share in a moment. But, but I've been so blessed. I mean, we've been here for eight months, but by Carla's commitment and all that she's done through with with Children's Ministry, with Hope Town, with Awana, with everything in this, her faithfulness. And then beyond even our church, uh, many of you, if you don't know Carla, you know she's been involved with the schools for a long time. She's been part of overseeing the, the PTA for Simi Valley. God has just given her places of authority and influence in our city. And so uh, what I'm excited about for her is that this actually opens a doorway for God to do even more in her life outside the church uh, because of the places of influence that God has given her. And Carla, I'm grateful to you because of your commitment and your faithfulness to the children and to those who've overseen children for all these years. As I said, this first service, in fact, it, the picture that came to me is, is from the movie Schindler's List at the end when Oscar Schindler's coming to grips with what he's done or what more he could have done. And, and the man standing in front of him says to him, he says, there will be generations who will be impacted because what you did. And that's true for you, that there are generations, there are kids today that are actually adults that through your influence and through the children's ministry came to know Jesus, learned how to follow him, and now are following him today. And so I want to say thank you to you on behalf of the church and for us and all that you've done and you've invested in, in, in the lives of the kids and in the church and your faithfulness. So I'm going to give her a chance to, to share just a little bit. And uh, so, Carla, if you would... And then we're going to say thank you to her. We're going to pray for her. So I think that's on. Go ahead. Good morning. Maybe it's not. All right. Now let's try that. On? There we go. Well, good morning. Um, you know, and as you said thank you to me, I say thank you to you guys. Um, without your kids, your grandkids, your your neighbor's kids, the people that, the kids that come to Sunday school, without them, um, I don't know, the last 14, 15 years would be so different. I have just learned so much from your guys' kids. They have taught me so much. And it's something that I will always remember and always take. And um, these past 14-plus years have just been incredible. Um, I've enjoyed it tremendously. And God is just opening other doors. And he has something new planned for me. So it is. It's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's sad. Um, but I'm also really excited, and um, I do have a lot of, of anticipation of what's to come. So, um, you know, again, I thank you, and I am just really, really looking forward to this next season of my life, and just to see where God's going to be leading me. Um, as I've shared with a couple of people, I think this is the first time ever in my life that I have let God lead me to where I'm going. Mm. 
I have definitely been a control person. <laughs> I like knowing what I'm doing, where I'm going, and I've released that, and I'm letting God lead me. And so um, it's amazing. So thank you. And I just really have just loved working with you and getting to know you guys as parents and grandparents. And um, I'll, still, I'll still be around. I'm just passing the torch to someone else to, that can lead our children on. Thank you, Carla. I'm going to ask, go ahead, say thank you to Carla for all that she's done, all she's invested. I'm going to ask if the elders and church council would come and join me, the leaders. We're going to lay hands on Carla and we're going to pray for her as she enters into this new, new season of life that God is opening a door for her. And uh, I'm excited about what God's doing for her. And uh, next week, you'll hear more about some of the details about what, what's going to happen with children's ministry in the future of investing in our, in our young people and kids. But we're going to pray for Carla, and, and we're going to thank the Lord for her. So would you extend your hand this way as we agree in prayer for Carla and even for Daryl and for Caitlin in, in this new season of what God is doing in all of their lives. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lord of this church. You are the Lord of Carla's life, and, and you have orchestrated things to allow her to have such great influence, Lord, in the lives of people in this church family. And I thank you for that. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that through what you have done in her and through her her over these years, now would even find a fuller expression, Lord, as she walks through this transition. Lord, I thank you for the places of influence, the relationships, the connections that you've given her within our own city. Lord, because we know that the church is not a building, it's not a gathering, it's us, it's people. And so Carla gets to represent the church, your church, in every relationship she has in the school district and in various schools individually. And I pray, Lord, that the doors that you want to open, that you would give her favor, that you would give her clarity. Even as she said, Lord, she's submitting herself to you and listening for you to take the lead on what you have for her. So, Lord, I pray that you would make that clear to her. And the result would be not only would Carla continue to experience your fulfillment of what you're doing in her, but, Lord, the result would be your kingdom would advance and extend, Lord, through her life because of the presence of your spirit who works through her. So fill her, empower her, Lord, for this next season. We thank you so much for her investment, Lord. We, we know that you are pleased with what Carla has done in giving, Lord, her life and her time to our church and to the kids. And so we ask, Lord, that today that you would bless her. Lord, you would show her the deep appreciation that you have, Lord. We know how much we love her and appreciate her, but, Lord, I pray she would feel that from you as well today. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. God bless you. Say thank you again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Colossians chapter 1. We are actually going to... Don't mind the man behind the curtain. Uh, We're going to jump into Colossians 1, look at verse 15 through verse 20 this morning. If you've been here the last few weeks, we walked through some some passages in the Old Testament, and we've talked about the extraordinary uh, ways that God works in our life as we surrender to Him. And so as we transition out of that series and then actually into a new one starting next week, uh, I wanted to just take some time, uh, and periodically it's really important for us to do this as in our own lives and as a church family, especially as we prepare for what we'll talk about in just a moment, what we're going to do in the next week and weeks following is that we always have to bring ourselves back to Jesus again. Now, I know it sounds really simple, and it sounds like, yeah, I got that. I know Jesus. We've talked about Jesus. We've, in fact, if you've been here the last eight months, we've talked about Jesus a lot, and that's on purpose. 
And so we have to constantly give, give ourselves the, the opportunities to come back and focus on him once again. And this morning I want to do that for a couple of reasons. It's good in the rhythm of following Jesus to be reminded of who he is. And that's why we're in Colossians chapter 1. Because when we look in this passage in a moment, it's one of the high points in the Bible where Paul just kind of goes off on who Jesus is. And gives us this amazing, incredible picture that really should give us a sense of awe of who Jesus is in our lives. And we want to take some time to, to walk through that. But as well, it prepares us for the weeks ahead because if you were here a number of months ago and I talked about where we're headed as a church and part of the the big piece of the pie is this concept called discipleship, which means following Jesus and what it means to be a disciple. And so next week, we're actually going to start into, into the book of Matthew. There's five high points of teaching in the book of Matthew of Jesus in his own words describing for you and I what it means to follow him. And so next week we're going to start that series. So we're talking about Jesus, and in the series we're going to listen to Jesus because ultimately Jesus has called us to follow him. And in following him we become disciples, we become learners, we become people who are willing to give up our life to do anything that Jesus calls us to do. So before we get there, one of the things that's important for us to understand is who are we following? Who is this Jesus? Now if you've been in church for a while, I think I got this one, I understand this one, but you and I forget the profound impact. In fact, as I was driving this morning here and I was praying, I got it. there's a sense of excitement in me and then a sense of fear as well. That as we go through this passage, I get to represent Jesus. I get to talk about Jesus and tell you about him. And I get excited about that. But then the same other side of the coin is I get afraid because I get to tell you about Jesus. And I want to make sure that I do it in a way that is appropriate and you understand and you get the weight of what Paul's communicating about Jesus, the one we follow the one that everything is about. And so this morning, that's why we're in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to just take kind of phrase by phrase and walk through uh, these verses from verse 15 to verse 20 and understand this understanding of who Jesus is. Now, listen to me. This is not so information to use to debate your friends about who Jesus is and if he's God and those kind of things. That's great, and it's good information. But this is about the personal understanding of who Jesus is that should absolutely blow us away when we hear it should change our understanding, should reignite the, the passion to follow him because of who he is in our lives. So starting in, in verse 15, the first thing that you and I need to understand about Jesus this morning as we walk through this passage is that he is what God looks like. Paul makes it really simple and straightforward. He says he is the image of the invisible God. This is Paul talking about Jesus. So what he's saying is if you want to know what God looks like, what God acts like, what God says, you look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that actually makes God tangible to humanity. He's the one that came into the world, actually lived a life like you and I, and so that you and I could understand from history and through the influence and power of the Holy Spirit in us who Jesus is, because understanding who Jesus is means you and I understand who God is. He is an icon, in in a sense, of what God is. When you look at Jesus, you know who God is. That's why the Bible is so popular. That's why there are so many books written about Jesus. That's why people devote their life to studying Jesus and following Jesus. Why? Because if you want to know God, know Jesus. People ask the question, well, what, what, what would God say about this? And what does God think about this? And how would God respond to this? Look at Jesus. He'll tell you. It's like when, you, when you're on a computer or your phone or an iPad or something like that, you have an app or you have an icon on your desktop, and you click on that, what you see is you see a small representation of something much broader. So if you click on an app on your phone, it opens. 
and you get the full experience of what that app has or a file that you have on your desktop, on your computer. There's an icon, and if you click on the icon, it opens this broader understanding of what's represented by that small little icon. Jesus is like that. He is, for you and I, the representation of God. So if you want to know who God is, now I know for some of you, think, I know, I get this. But one of the biggest questions in our culture is who God is. Everybody tries to define God when, Je- when God has already defined himself in Jesus. So what does the world need? The world needs Jesus because the world needs to understand who God really is. And you and I can point to him. And we can talk about him. And there's more books written about Jesus than any other person in all of human history. His life is most well documented than any other person. That we know more about him than any other historical figure. Why? Because he is God in human flesh. He's the one we point to. He's the one we understand. If you ever find yourself struggling with the understanding of who God is, go to the Gospels. Read about Jesus. Read what Jesus says. Because what Jesus is saying is what God would say to you and I. Because Jesus is his representation. He is the image of the invisible God. Second thing. In fact, actually, let me read from John 14, verses 5 through 9, because this is the same thing Jesus is saying. What Paul inspired here is what he was saying to his disciples in John 14. It says in John 14, verse 5 through 9, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where we are going, so how can we get or know the way? Jesus answered, very famous passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do, not, or you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. What is Philip saying? Show us God. And he said, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? So Jesus is saying, you want to know who God is? You're looking at him. This is what he looks like. This is what he talks like. This is what he says. It's all through Jesus. Second thing, verse 15 and 16. He's also the creator of all things. Paul says he's the firstborn over all creation, which doesn't mean that he's literally born, but it means that he is the priority and the one that is over all creation. It says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers of rulers or authorities. So Jesus is the creator of of all things, of everything. That means everything earthly, everything that you and I can see, touch, smell, feel, all of the senses, all the things, Jesus created all those things. Things that you and I can't see, things that are spiritual in nature, powers, authorities, all the things. Jesus is over all those. He's created everything. There's nothing that is in existence that he did not create, that he is not over. And, and, and that is incredible to think that there is somebody who is greater than all creation. That is above all creation because he is the creator of all things. He covers everything. And just to capture that in just a, a snapshot, I want to just make it about the physical reality. I want to not talk about spiritual authorities and powers and things like that. Jesus is also the creator of and over all things. He is the firstborn. He's the priority of everything. But he is the creator of the universe And because you and I sit on this little dot called Earth in this tiny little place called Simi Valley, and that becomes most of our known context, we lose the immensity and incredibleness of how Jesus is over all things. He's created everything. He's created the universe. For just a few minutes, I want you to watch this video that gives us kind of some of amazing information about how vast the universe is that we find ourselves in existence. Let's watch this together.
Yeah, that is kind of funny. It's a slight understatement. Just think about this for just a moment. Jesus is the creator of all things. We're on a, on a planet called Earth in a solar system. A, there are billions of solar systems, a part of a galaxy. There are billions of galaxies across this immense universe. We don't have a concept for the size of it. And Jesus is over all of that. Just let that sink in for a moment. Because all the only context you and I have is Earth. And Earth is not even, it's in, in comparison to the universe, it's not even the size of the, of the point of a needle. It's how small it is. That's how immense it is. And Jesus is the God of the universe who has created all things. Which leads to the next thing that Paul highlights in verse 16, the last part of verse 16, and that he's not only is he the creator of all things, he is the center of all things. Paul says, all things were created by him and for him. So it's not as though Jesus is kind of outside of everything and just aloof and away from everything. He actually is the center of all things because all things were not only created by him, but they're for him, which means our lives, this planet, the universe, the heavenly realms, the spiritual powers, all those things were built and made and created so that Jesus could be at the center of all things. They are customized for him at the center. That's why when Jesus is not at the center of our lives, things don't work right. Because he was meant to be at the center of all things. That's why Paul also writes in the book of Philippians when he says that someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why all this exists. Because Jesus is, we are being reconciled through Jesus back to God so that someday Jesus can be glorified to the point where once again he's rightfully the center of all things. He should be the center of our lives. That's where he gets glory. That's where life doesn't mean that all of our problems go away. But when Jesus is at the center of who we are, that's when we work the way we're supposed to work. That's when life has purpose. That's, why we, that's when we understand why we're alive. I talked about a car last week, but let's think about a car again. So if you go out in your, into the parking lot and you sit down in your car, even if it's an older car, but more and more the newer cars, when you sit down as the driver, that car is built around you. Because when you get in as the driver, you are the center of that vehicle. And it is built that way. It is designed for you to be able to drive it, to be safe, to have all the, feet, the, the comforts that you want around you. And more and more, it's the driver is the center of the car. Now, when the passenger becomes the center, it doesn't quite work right. Because the passenger doesn't have a steering wheel or a gas pedal or a brake or the right mirrors or all the things that you would need to actually drive the car. And that's kind of like the way it is when you and I try to become the center of our own lives. You and I can never take the driver's seat. Because it was made, our life was made to have Jesus at the center. He is the center of all things. Our planet, the authorities, the, the powers, the different leaders, all those things, all ultimately God designed so that Jesus was at the center. Why does the world fall apart? Why, does, why do things happen bad like in Syria or in Egypt? Why all that is because ultimately God is not being glorified through Jesus. Jesus is not the center. Somebody else is trying to drive the car and they're not doing a very good job of it, which applies to our lives. Jesus designed us so that he should be at the center of who we are. Not because he's got some big ego that he's got a pad, but because he loves us enough to know that our lives are best when he's at the center. And understanding that means that we 
need to refocus ourselves. And that's why every once in a while we got to hit the reset button on Jesus and go back and say, okay, is he the center? Is he the focus? Is he, is he what my life is about? Or is it really somehow I've tried to push him out of the driver's seat? I've become the center of my reality. I've become the center of my world. Paul says that he is the center of all things. All things were created by him for him, for his purpose. So jump up to, over to verse 18. We're going to come back to verse 17 in a little bit. But verse 18, as we continue to walk through the passage. Also, Paul says that he is the head of the church. He said he is the head of the body, which is the church. Now you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? Yeah, I know. This image of church is that it's the body of Christ. And therefore, because Jesus is at the center, he's in charge, he's the head. But what does that actually mean? Because you, you can say that, and it is one of the most important things that we as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, being in the church, get wrong all the time. Is because we say, yeah, Jesus is the head of the church, Jesus is the Lord of the church, but ultimately when push comes to shove, I'm in charge. That's the way we do it. And I've shared a little bit about my journey, and that's when I, Kim and I, we, with a team of people, we planted a church in Ventura, and the first five, almost four and a half to five years of that church plant, I wouldn't have said it, I wouldn't have articulated it, but functionally, I was the head of the church. I was the one that called the shots. I was the one that was in charge. I was the one that everything was revolving around. I was the center of the church. And Kim can tell you, it was absolutely killing me. Because my spiritual life, my emotional life, my life in general, was living and dying by the church. According to the success or the failure of the church. So it was either I would take credit for its successes or I would be devastated by its defeats because I was the center. And so I would be brutal on people because ultimately if it's about me and they're not doing a good job of making me look good, then I would get frustrated with them. I would take it out on people around me because it was about me and it wasn't about Jesus. And through a humbling, almost humiliating process, God walked me through. He finally got a hold of me to the point where, listen, I went through Bible college and I got my, my degree in Bible and I know the scriptures and I've read through the book of Ephesians, but it took the experience of pastoring and realizing that you're not who you think you are and Jesus is really at the center and he really is the Lord of the church that you need to get out of the way. I didn't learn that in Bible college. I learned that through experience of ministry that taught me. Jesus is the Lord of the church. That means that we exist for his glory. We exist for his purpose. I don't do what I do so that I could stand at the door and you can walk by me and pat me on the back and say, hey, that's a great message, pastor. Which, by the way, people do it every week. And that's great, but that's not why I do what I do. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I want to be able to look back on this day and say, I got out of the way, I was invisible, God was visible, and lives were changed. Because I can't change anybody. And that's why stepping back and allowing Jesus to take the place as Lord over new hope means that we respond to what he said in the scripture about what he's called us to do. We get back to simply following what Jesus said because he's the Lord of the church. And at every point that we make a decision about the church, we have to ask the question, is this about us or is it about him? If it's about him, it's going to look different. Because he's already told us in Scripture, that's what we're going to unpack as we go through Matthew, what he's called us to do, what it looks like to follow him, all those kinds of things that that over the years we try to cater and adjust to us because ultimately it's about us. That's kind of the the concept that as we talk about right size 
And we'll talk more about that next week as we look for a new building that we're looking at one right now. We don't know. We're talking to the city and seeing if it's going to work out. But the process of going into a new building is not about us. It's not about comfort. It's not about bigger is better. It's not about a nicer place. It's actually about a smaller place and maybe not so nice place because we don't want to spend money on buildings. We want to spend money on God's mission because he's the Lord of the church. So that means if it's not about us, I can be uncomfortable. I can be in a smaller sanctuary and actually sit next to people and rub shoulders with people, right? You can do that, right? If it's about Jesus, some of you are going, no, no, I need my space. (laughs) Jesus is the Lord of the church. Somebody actually moved over that. That was a good move. They actually moved. There was an empty seat that was good. So moving on, look at going on, continuing on in, in verse 18. Paul also says that he has power over death. So Paul goes on and he says, He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. And what Paul is saying is the biggest issue for humanity is this thing called death. It is what drives you and I every day of our life to find ways to extend life and avoid death. We talked about that last week. Death is always something that is an issue for humanity. But what Paul is saying is be reminded, Jesus has the supremacy because he's already died and risen from the dead. Therefore, Death has no power over him. And because of that, and you and I choose to follow him, as he has experienced resurrection, so we too will experience resurrection, which means death is not the end. Death has no power over you if you've given your life to Jesus because Jesus has already defeated death. And so if you follow Jesus with your life and you've committed him and you know God, the wonderful thing is death is not the end. Death is a doorway. Death is a doorway into what life really is about. It's a passageway that goes into eternity, into the presence of God to experience what God intended for humanity in the first place, to be in direct relationship with us. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I go out and try to to die today because we want to go experience that. I know some people say, oh, I'd just love to go see Jesus. He'll bring you home when he wants you to. That's his choice. He's Lord over death and he's Lord over your life. But there should be this sense of, I know that the dying process as a human being is not fun. And the fear of death can be gripping and can control us. But if you and I, for a moment, realize that if we really believe what Paul said in the book of Philippians, when he said, listen, he says, for me to, to live, that's about Jesus. He's Lord of my life. But to die, that's gain. That's actually better. If we really had that grasp, we would live differently. If we, if we really believe that, then we wouldn't hang on so tightly to our possessions or to safety or to these things of concern of why I don't want this bad thing to happen. And that drives our decisions and, and really puts the brakes on a lot of times what God wants to do in our lives because of fear and the fear of loss or fear of death. We don't do it. But what if that gets removed? That's why when you read through the back, book of Acts, they were crazy. You never see Paul talking about being afraid of death, not after he encountered Jesus. He actually anticipated it. He knew it was coming. People told, oh, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do that. Don't go, to, don't go and, and get arrested and then go to Rome because if you do that, then, then you're going to die. And he's like, okay, so? And we know he did die. Because when you and I follow the one who has conquered death, then you and I have nothing to fear. We don't have to be afraid of death. It's actually a doorway. So I don't have to live with this idea of how do I make sure that I don't die today. I leave that up to God. I let him make that decision of the day that he wants me to come into his presence. So moving on. 
The sixth thing is that this seems really basic but really important. In verse 19 is he is God. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Not half, not 75%, not even 95, but all. Not only is Jesus the representation of God, he is God. And this is where one of those things that we have to function in faith, where the Bible describes this thing that we've given a name to. It's called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Don't try to understand it or explain it because you can't, because it's beyond human comprehension. That's called faith. But the reality of that is what the scriptures tell us is that Jesus is fully God as the Father is fully God. So Jesus, as he walked the planet, was God in human flesh. And that is so important for you and I to understand because of all thought processes and philosophies and religions throughout the world, this is the dividing line of faith. Because every faith and every cult and every religion that you will encounter throughout the world It always comes down to every single one of them has to answer the question, who is Jesus? And some will come up with ideas that, well, he never existed, which that's called putting your head in the sand and ignoring history. Others will say he was a good teacher. Others will actually say that he's a God, but not the God. It's when you cross over line and you realize that Jesus is God. He is is God in human flesh, and understanding that, that, that's why I mentioned at the start that if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. And that's why we read earlier in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. He says, no one gets to God except through me. But, but so many times, you know, in, in, in the effort to try to be inclusive and to not offend anybody, we try to kind of water things down. And, you know, when someone asks the, the dreaded question, do all religions lead to God and Is there a hell? Do people go to hell? Does everybody go to heaven? All those questions come down to this one. I heard a really good description of it. You know, in in, in the world, what what the world describes religion is, is that it's as if God's up on top of this mountain. And humanity surrounds the mountain. And you can come up with whatever philosophy or whatever path or whatever uh, thought process that you want that will get you to the top of the mountain. You can come from the east side or the west side or the north side, however you want to do it. But basically... All religions lead to the top of the mountain, and there's God. So it doesn't matter how you get there, you all get to the same place. Doesn't that sound just warm and fuzzy and wonderful? But someone helped that description a little bit more because the difference between what we would call Christianity and any other world religion is the God who lived up on that mountain didn't require us to climb it. He came down. He came down to be with us because he knew the mountain that he was on was too high for us to climb. And that's where God got specific. Because he didn't come, and by the way, he didn't come, Jesus didn't come to start Christianity. That's a label that was put on Christians. That was a label that was put on followers of Jesus. But he's, Jesus is not about Christianity. He's about the glory of God. That's what he's about. And because of that, God got very specific when he sent Jesus into the world to say, by the way, just to quiet all of the arguments, you want to know who God is, this is who he is. This is what he looks like. His name is Jesus. And that's important for our world to understand because I know we don't try to be offensive, but if somebody wants to ask the question, that is the dividing line, that the God of the universe has told us who he is because he came as Jesus. And because of that, we know who God is. 
And we have to ask, answer the question in our own lives, who is Jesus? And you can't rely on somebody else's answer or you can't pass the buck. That's the ultimate question. Who is Jesus? That's why Paul was saying to the Colossian church who had a real issue. There's a philosophy going around that time of skewed view of who Jesus is. So Paul's making it really clear. This is who he is. So moving on to the seventh thing. Verse 20. Paul also says that he is the reconciler of all things. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So he's the image, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the creator of all things, he's the God of the universe, he's all these things. And what Jesus' purpose was and is today is to draw all people, everything, even the creation of the universe that's spinning out of control is to draw all things back through Jesus to God, which is what God purposed in the beginning. To reconcile. And that is, if you want to know why we exist, why the church exists, not just New Hope, but why the church exists, why we're still here, is because all of mankind haven't had the opportunity to be reconciled back to God through Jesus. That's why we're still here. It's not about church attendance. It's not about Christianity. It's about the God of the universe loving humanity so much that he sent his son into the world, God himself, to die on the cross for you and I so that the sin that separated us from God can be dealt with so that we can all be drawn back into a direct connection with the God of the universe. That is, that is the summary of human history in 20 seconds. That's what it is. And that's why when we look at our own lives, that God is in constant process through Jesus of bringing us back into a relationship with him. And so all the people around us, every time you drive by somebody, you go to a restaurant, you see your neighbor and they don't know Jesus, God is in the process of using you to draw them back through Jesus to God to be in relationship with him again. That's why we exist. He's the reconciler of all things. He is making what is wrong right again to draw us back into relationship. See, you and I have to understand that apart from Jesus, there is no reconciliation. There is no reconnecting with God. There is no hope because there is no payment for our sin. We are separated, isolated, and done. But Jesus, through his death, has created this opportunity, this pathway, this bridge to once again overcome the sin that separates us and once again connect with God. See, our own life is in the process of being unreconciled with God. We make decisions every day that pull us away from God, and Jesus, in the process of dying on the cross, makes forgiveness available to us for, once again, be connected to God, be reconciled to God. One of my, my fishing expeditions with my cousin that I mentioned a couple times before, we were at their house up in the Bay Area, and so there was a reservoir near their house that we used to go and fish at, and there was a, a stream that would come out of that, or a river that would come out of that we would fish as well. And so one day... We went to, to fish, and we were fishing on one side, and, and, and at the time, the, the river was, was more of like a stream. It wasn't real high, and so we tiptoed our way across to get to the other side to find a better spot to fish, and so we were having a great time, and, and a couple hours went by, and, and started to notice that the, the water started to rise just a little bit, you know, and I just thought, oh, okay, that's normal, and then after about another 20 minutes, it started to rise a little bit more, and then after like an hour, what was this little trickling stream was like a raging river that just kept kind of rising up above these banks that we were trying to, to get away from. And of course, they were releasing water from the dam, and we didn't know that. And so as I'm watching the level go up, I'm watching all the rocks that we tiptoed across a, an hour or so ago are gone. I can't even see them. In fact, I can't see any rocks. All I can see is water and rapids 
and just a force in front of me. And I'm like freaking out. I'm like, okay, we're done. Now we're stuck because now we can't get back across. I don't know. We literally felt like in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where we're going. And my cousin, he never flinched. He knew what was going on. He knew that, of course, he didn't tell me that. I think he wanted to see me freak out. So we started hiking, and we had to hike probably about a mile. And I'm like, where are we going? He goes, don't worry about it. I, we'll, we'll get back home. And sure enough, he knew a mile up that there was a bridge. And all we had to do was get to the bridge, and we'd get right over. It didn't matter how high the water got, the bridge was still going to be high enough, and we were going to get back home. And we made it, and I'm like, oh, I'm saved. I thought I'd never see my parents again. I'd be dead because the river was rising. You know, anybody ever panic like that, or I'm just like confessing my own issues in life? But you and I need to understand that the decisions that you and I make every day, we find ourselves in the same situation. We find the decision we made, even intentionally or unintentionally, has separated us from God. And if there is no bridge, there is no hope. Because you can't get back to God. Jesus provided the bridge. Jesus provided access so that that torrent of sin in front of us that separates us from God can be covered over and can be made to get across so that you and I have access to God. He is the reconciler of all things. So that's what's so beautiful about the way God works, is that the God of the universe sent Jesus to die on the cross, and then when Jesus went back to the Father, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God in spirit in our lives, pursuing all of humanity to draw us back to God. This is what I love about God. He will never, ever, ever stop pursuing us. Until somebody breathes their last breath, God will never give up on anybody. He will pursue and pursue and pursue. Why? Because through Jesus, God is reconciling everybody back to him. That's why we exist. That's why Jesus came. And then finally, in verse 17, in just a a few moments, the worship team is going to join us back here, and we'll have an opportunity to to have communion together. But in verse 17, I wanted to jump back because this, this, to me, is something that gets to the core of who we are spiritually and physically. Paul says in verse 17 that, Jesus holds all things together. He says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What Paul is saying is that if you take Jesus out of the equation, everything falls apart, everything comes apart. At every point of our human experience, at every point of the physical realities, Jesus is what holds all things together. And most of the world doesn't even know that. He holds us together. So what I'd like to do is there's about, it's about three and a half minute video. Some of you might have seen this before, but this is actually Louis Giglio, who's talking about a discovery he made through a conversation with a biologist about how Jesus literally holds us together. Let's watch this together. Just go ahead if you close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to see the image. It's obviously no accident that the structure of a protein molecule that's holding our body body together is in the form of a cross. It's not an accident. It's not some Christian biologist rendering of that. It's actually a scientific drawing. I want you just to think for a moment, just with your eyes closed, that your actual physical body apart from that protein that is in the shape of a cross would not even be able to be here in this place right now. You wouldn't be able to sit or stand or breathe 
or eat or talk or do anything because your body wouldn't be able to hold together. That the God of the universe loved us so much that he put even at a molecular level within our bodies a stamp of the cross that is our salvation, that is the symbol known around the world as Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that when Paul wrote these words thousands of years ago, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is exactly what God had in mind for us to understand in terms of our physical bodies. What I'd like to do just in the next few moments, in a moment we will have an opportunity to have communion together. The symbols of Jesus' blood and his body broken for us, the bread and the cup. And in a moment when we dismiss, you are welcome as the team leads in worship to go, the four stations just around the sanctuary, and to receive those elements and take them. But before we do that, we do this again to remind ourselves once again of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, which took the weight of our sin off of us. And before we do that, I want to just give an opportunity, as I was really praying this morning, I, I want you to hear me. I don't want to try to convince anybody. I don't want to try to force anything on anybody, but I, I don't want anybody to leave this place today and not understand and know Jesus. And not just to know information about him, that he's the creator of all things, that he holds all things together, that he's God. Those are all important things, but the God of the universe wants you to know Jesus personally. Jesus wants you to to know him in a way that you'll follow him with your life because that is the reason that you are alive, is to be brought back to God. And today God has brought you here, and you might think it's a million different reasons why you're here, but you know in your life that you've never come to that place where you have completely surrendered your life, not just added Jesus in to the mix, but you've completely surrendered yourself to him and said, I no longer will choose to live my life, I will no longer be the center of my world, that I will choose to follow Jesus and make him the center of my life. If you've not done that, today I believe is the day that God wants you to make that decision. Not because I'm trying to force you, but you know that God has already been speaking to you. Maybe he's been harassing you because he's drawing you back to himself through Jesus. And today he's saying, I want you to be, come back to me. And you, the way you do that is by surrendering your life to Jesus. You don't have, have to have all the answers. But one thing you do need to know is that God's called you to give up your life, to surrender yourself to him, and to choose to follow him. If that's your decision right now, just right where you're at, I want you to do something very simple. I want you to talk to Jesus. And the way you talk to him is through this thing called called prayer. That's all it is. You begin in your own words to express what you are feeling inside about your desire to know him, your desire to surrender him, your desire to follow him. Because as you do that, and as I pray in just these few moments, as you do that, and we come to the point of communion, I want you to know you have an opportunity to be reminded through Jesus sacrificed the symbols that point to the cross, that you are forgiven, that God tells you that you are a part of his family, and that every sin that you've committed in the past that you will commit today and you will commit in the future, Jesus is covered by his sacrifice. There is no river too wide, there is no wall too tall that that bridge cannot get over to bring you back to God. So if that's you today, begin to just talk to God.
about this commitment you want to make. And Lord Jesus, as we come to worship you, as we come to once again honor you, to glorify you, to be reminded about who you are, I pray, Lord, as we approach communion, that we would do this, Lord. I know there's a point of us reflecting on our own sin and failure, but also it should be a celebration, Lord, of who you are, of what you've done, that your cross not only forgives our sin and makes a way for us to come back to God, it's the very thing that holds us together. It's the very thing that makes life possible. So I pray that today we would celebrate as we come to this table to take these elements and come in a sense of awe, the sense of gratitude and saying, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. We want to honor and glorify you today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.